In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Thanks to Ladder for supporting my show. Ladder makes it quick and easy to get covered for life insurance. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly approved. Just go to ladderlife.com slash gold. We got a lot of economic data out this morning, but I want to focus on the two more important ones, at least as far as the markets and the Fed seem to be concerned. One is the retail sales numbers for May. The expectation was for a decline of 0.5, and instead we dropped by 1.3%. Now, there was a revision to the prior month, which I guess takes some of the sting out of it, because that month was originally reported at zero, and it was upwardly revised to 0.9. But still, that's a pretty substantial decline on a month-over-month basis. And I think what it really is showing is that rising prices are taking a bite out of real consumer spending. And remember, these retail sales numbers are not adjusted for inflation. So if retail sales are going up, it could be simply a function of prices going up not meaning that consumers bought more, just that consumers paid more for the stuff they bought. But what I think is actually happening is because stuff is so much more expensive and consumers are paying more, they're actually buying less. In fact, the numbers got worse. If you look at them, X gasoline and vehicles, they were expecting a rise of 0.2 and instead we got a decline of 0.8. But there again, the prior month's 0.8% decline was revised to a 
1% gain. But again, considering how much retail prices are going up, and we know that they're going up, the fact that retail sales themselves are flat, despite the fact that consumers are paying more for all the products that they're buying retail, shows that overall, consumers are buying less stuff. And in fact, look at what happened to producer prices. That was the other big number that came out this morning. The expectation was for a rise of 0.5 for the month of May. Instead, the actual gain was 0.8, 60% above the expected rise. And in fact, above the upper end of the consensus range. The consensus was from a low number of 0.3 to a high number of 0.7. And instead, we rose by 0.8. So we exceeded the upper end of that range. In fact, this was the 13th consecutive month in which producer prices have gone up. And if you look at it on a year-over-year basis, the gain is 6.6%, and that bests the 6.2% year-over-year gain of the prior month. This is the biggest year-over-year increase in producer prices in the history of this particular series. I'm not sure exactly how far it goes back, but there's never been a year-over-year gain that's been this high. In fact, even when you strip out food and energy, the year-over-year increase is 4.8%. That beat the 4.1% from the prior month. And year-over-year, ex-food and energy and trade services, the gain is 5.3%. Even on the month, the monthly gain in PPI core was up 0.7%. That equaled the 0.7% gain from the prior month and beat the expected gain of 0.5. So once again, we get worse than expected news on rising prices. And again, these are prices on the producer level. As I've been saying, I think producers have been reluctant to pass on these higher costs to their consumers. A lot of the producers are hoping that the Fed is right, that it's just transitory. And so they don't want to rush to raise prices now when they may not have to, and maybe their competitors won't. So in the short run, they eat it in lower margins. But ultimately, by the second half of this year, producers are going to throw in the towel on the fantasy that this is all transitory, and they're going to really begin to look to offset their rising costs by raising their prices to their consumers. And so I think we're going to see an upward acceleration in the CPI. Meanwhile, look at what's happening to oil prices. They are at a new high for the year today. We're getting close to $71 a barrel. The highest I've seen so far this morning is $70.92. It's a little bit below that now, but this is the highest we've seen for oil prices since October of 2018. And if you remember what happened in the fourth quarter of 2018, that's when the wheels came off the bus, everything started collapsing. You know, the Fed raised rates for the final time in December of that year, despite uh, collapsing markets and the specter of recession looming. And so that's when oil prices peaked and they turned around. Well, we don't have any peak in sight right now. It's clear sailing as far as 
oil prices are going, and oil prices factor into producer prices in many ways. Not only does it cost more to produce stuff because of higher energy costs that are an important component to the input costs of production, but all the goods must be transported after they're produced. In fact, a lot of the components that go into the production process, they need to be transported. And so all these transportation costs are going up throughout the supply chain, and all of this ultimately has to be borne by the end consumer. It needs to be built in to the price that is paid for all these goods. So all of this is going to be affecting prices, I think, bigger in the second half of the year than in the first half. So the only thing that's really transitory is the illusion that inflation is transitory. Maybe the recovery is what's transitory, but inflation is here to stay. It's going to get worse. In fact, I was on Tucker Carlson again last night to discuss inflation. Unfortunately, no, the show really ran short on time. I was supposed to start at 8.50, which would have given me closer to 10 minutes to have a real discussion of inflation. But by the time they actually got around to putting me on, there was only like two minutes left of the show. So I think I only had maybe two minutes of airtime, but I did manage to get a lot of stuff in. They apologized to me off the air and said they'd have me back on soon. And I'm sure they will, because now that is the third time that I was on the Tucker show. In fact, when he handed off the show to Hannity, Hannity basically commented on my segment by saying, hey, that guy is right uh, when he's talking about inflation. Now, today is also the first day of a two-day Fed meeting. We will get the decision on whether or not they're going to raise rates. I mean, obviously, they're not going to do it. What's more important than the decision is going to be what the Fed says, both in their prepared statement and what Powell says in the Q&A that is going to follow his prepared remarks, Paul Tudor Jones was interviewed on CNBC yesterday morning, and he said that he thought that this Fed meeting was going to be the most important meeting in Powell's career. Maybe he said it was going to be the most important Fed meeting ever. I'm not sure. But the reason that Paul Tudor Jones believes that this particular meeting is so significant is because he thinks the Federal Reserve needs to acknowledge how bad the inflation data is, how much worse than expectations the inflation data is, and that the Fed needs to alter its policy. It needs to adapt to this changing information and indicate to the markets that the Fed is on the job, that the Fed acknowledges this inflationary fire, and that it is going to put it out by tapering sooner than they had anticipated, by raising interest rates sooner than they had forecast. And Paul says if they fail to acknowledge this change, if they just shrug off the data and pretend that everything is going to plan and there's nothing to worry about and it's all transitory, then Paul Tudor Jones said he wants to go all in on the inflation trade. Well, my point would be, hey, Paul, go all in on the inflation trade now. What are you waiting for? It's obvious that they're not going to do that. The Fed is going to stick to the playbook that everything is great and there's nothing to worry about because there is no way that it can acknowledge 
the threat to inflation when there is no way it could do anything about it, at least nothing that it's prepared to do. Look, Tudor Jones himself stated that he thinks it's more likely that they are going to ignore the threat because he compared it to the meeting from December of 2018 when the Fed hiked rates despite overwhelming evidence that the economy was in trouble and that we were potentially headed to recession. The stock market was tanking. I mean, I remember going into that meeting. I was on Fox Business two days before that December meeting. And on Fox Business, I said that if the Fed raised rates in December, that it would be the last time they did it and that the very next move would be a cut. And at the time I said that, nobody, including Paul Tudor Jones, had that opinion. I was the only guy out there that predicted that the December 2018 hike would be the last hike and that the next move by the Fed would be a cut. In fact, again, I was at a conference in Canada, Vancouver, in January of 2019, and I made that prediction again on the panel, and everybody was like, no way, the Fed's going to hike rates two or three times this year. I said, no, they're not. They're going to cut rates, and I ended up betting Brett Johnson a gold coin. He bet that the next move would be up. I bet down, and I ended up collecting that coin. In fact, I've now collected my second coin because the following year, we made another bet on the direction of the dollar. Brent bet that the dollar would go up. I bet that it would go down. I won that bet. And then the following year, we made the same bet again. Brent bet the dollar would go up. I bet it would go down again. So far, I'm a little bit ahead, I think, on that bet based on where the dollar was when we made it, but it's a little bit too early for me to claim victory. But I'm pretty confident that I will win this bet as well because the dollar looks like it's going to be much weaker in the second half of this year than it has been in the first. But Paul Tudor Jones brought up that meeting to show that how the Fed should have seen that its forecast was wrong, that its rosy scenario was not consistent with all of the incoming data. And what the Fed should have done in December was called off the rate hike that it had telegraphed. But the market was expecting the Fed to raise rates. And the Fed did not want to do anything to confound those expectations. In fact, I think the Fed did not want to risk causing the markets to panic based on the Fed's change. Because after all, if the Fed were to acknowledge that there was something in the data that it did not like, that might scare the markets. So the Fed was just ignoring all of the bad data and just continued to raise rates as planned. Then, of course, seven months later, they were forced to reverse course and do exactly what I said they were going to do from the beginning and begin to take back those rate hikes. And again, remember, when they first did it, The Fed said it was a mid-course correction. They tried to pretend that they were just cutting rates a little bit, and then they were going to resume the rate hikes. I called BS at the time. I said it wasn't a correction. It was just a first step on the road back to zero. And then, of course, when COVID hit, uh, they went straight to zero without passing go. Well, what Paul Tudor Jones is saying is that he thinks this meeting will be similar to that meeting in that the Fed is going to ignore 
all of this data that inflation is much worse than they thought and continue operating under the false assumption that it's all transitory and indicate to the market that nothing has changed, that none of this new data has caused the Fed to reassess its opinion on inflation. And so everything is business as usual. Uh, We're going to stick to our plan of not even thinking about thinking about thinking about raising interest rates or whatever it is. And, you know, tapering is off in the distance. And if Powell does that and the Fed does that, then again, Tudor Jones wants to go all in on the inflation trade. If, on the other hand, the Fed surprises the market by acknowledging inflation's threat and indicating that it's going to do something about it, then he expects the markets to tank. And I would agree, if the Fed did so indicate, the markets would tank, which is exactly why the Fed is not going to do it. But the other big difference, I think, between the mistake they're going to make now and the mistake that they, I guess, made uh, back in 2018, although I don't consider it a mistake, they never should have cut rates. They should have allowed the recession to happen. But from the Fed's perspective, it was a mistake. Well, that mistake is easily corrected by the Fed because the Fed is always willing to cut interest rates to stimulate the economy and stimulate the stock market. What they're not willing to do is raise rates to fight inflation if that means crushing the economy. So if several months into the future, it becomes obvious that the Fed misread the inflation signs, that it wasn't transitory, it was a permanent and lasting increase, And now the Fed looks back with the benefit of hindsight and sees this massive rise in consumer prices, it can't correct it. It can't do what it did in 2019 and start cutting rates. It's not going to raise rates dramatically, you know, sometime in 2022 or something like that, because it looks back on 2021 as like, gee, we really got this one wrong. What a screw up we had then. I mean, we really... Uh, got inflation wrong. This thing is really big. We've got, you know, 8%, 10% inflation. We have to slam on the brakes. We have to jack interest rates way up. There's no way the Fed's going to do that. The Fed has put itself in a position where it can't correct its mistakes. In fact, its mistakes are already so bad that it can't correct them now. So how's it going to correct the even bigger mistakes in the future that are going to be the consequence of its failure to acknowledge the mistakes of the past? As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, 
things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash gold. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. And another reason why the Federal Reserve has absolutely no incentive to basically acknowledge that they've got inflation wrong and that these numbers that have come out between the last meeting somehow you know change everything is that the markets are still completely on board with what the Fed is saying. In fact, look at what happened to the price of gold yesterday. Early yesterday morning, gold plunged about $30. I mean, right away, no news. It just collapsed by $30. And I think the main reason for this big sell-off in the price of gold is a general acceptance that the Fed's narrative is true, that they've got this under control, that there's nothing to worry about, that all the inflation is transitory, the economy is booming, that all of the stimulus, all the money printing and deficit spending, none of that matters. None of that is causing inflation. That's not the reason that prices are going up. They're simply going up as a function of the economy reopening. And all of this is going to be transitory. And yes, sure, eventually the Fed will slightly raise interest rates. No big deal. The rate hikes will not be enough to derail the recovery, right? It won't hurt the stock market. Everything is great. The only thing that's going to be impacted by these slight increases in interest rates is going to be the price of gold, right? Because everything is great. There's nothing to worry about. Why buy gold? Just buy stocks. That's what the market is telling the Fed. So why should the Fed upset that apple cart? The markets aren't selling off because they're worried that the Fed is behind the curve. Gold isn't taking off because they recognize that the Fed is behind the curve. So all the signals that the Federal Reserve is getting from the market is that everything is fine. The problem is these signals are wrong. All of these market mechanisms have been broken by the Fed, distorted by the Fed. And so they're getting a false sense of confidence from the markets that they're on the right course. And so why should they veer from it? Also, during that CNBC interview, Paul Tudor Jones also indicated that he was still holding on to his 5% Bitcoin position. Also, he has a 5% 
position in gold. So he's got money split evenly between gold and Bitcoin. But that also helped Bitcoin rally. In fact, yesterday, Bitcoin got back above 40,000 once again. Remember, it was trading around 35,000 or so, 36,000 going into the weekend. Although the rally really got started once again by an Elon Musk tweet. So as much as the Bitcoin community likes to pretend they hate Elon Musk, they're still completely fixated on his every tweet. And they bought as soon as he indicated that Tesla was still holding on to its Bitcoin in a tweet, which was a reply to another tweet. Musk tweeted, this is inaccurate. Tesla only sold about 10% of its holdings to confirm that Bitcoin could be liquidated easily without moving the market. So in other words, he was just testing the markets, just wanted to make sure he could sell if he wanted to, and he could. And so, hey, we're still holding the other 90%, no intention of selling, apparently. So this was bullish. But also in that same tweet, Musk wrote, when there's confirmation of a reasonable approximately 50% clean energy usage by miners with positive future trends, Tesla will resume allowing Bitcoin transactions. And I think the second part of the tweet, referencing Bitcoin transactions, that's what really got people buying. Of course, it's all irrelevant. I think maybe there was one Tesla that somebody had purchased uh, using Bitcoin before they halted the process. The whole thing is a gimmick. Nobody's really buying cars with Bitcoin. No one's buying anything with Bitcoin. They're just trying to pretend that Bitcoin is going to be used as a media of exchange or a unit of account just to drive this false narrative that Bitcoin is the future of money. It's not. It's simply a modern day version of a chain letter, of a pyramid scheme, of a Ponzi, all rolled into one. In fact, one of the reasons also that Bitcoin rose is because you have the specter of this big buy, this $500 million buy by MicroStrategy, because they just concluded this sale of these senior notes where they went into debt, right? Six and I think an eighth percent coupon in order to buy more Bitcoin. Clearly the market knows this big buy order is coming and they're front running the trade. Now also it's possible that some of that money is already being used to buy Bitcoin. And so that buying is helping to drive the price higher. But even before Saylor announced that they have concluded their buy, right? That they've spent all this money and they now own all these additional Bitcoin. Yesterday afternoon, Saylor announced via Twitter that his company, MicroStrategy, has filed to sell another $1 billion worth of MicroStrategy stock in an at-the-market offering. And what does it intend to do with the proceeds from dumping all this stock on the market? Why, it's going to buy another billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. Now, to me, these actions smack of desperation. I mean, if you look at what Michael Saylor is saying, Bitcoin is going to a million, it's going to even higher. So given his rosy outlook, how much higher Saylor believes Bitcoin is going, he already owns more than enough. I mean, after this debt offering, I think he'll have like two and a half billion worth of Bitcoin at current market value. Why does he need to take it up to three and a half billion? Doesn't he already have more than enough? If he is right, 
his shareholders are going to be some of the richest people in the world. He has got more Bitcoin on his balance sheet by far than any other company. And especially if you look at it as a percentage of the entire value of the company. I mean, at this point, the whole thing is already a Bitcoin closed-end fund or something like that. Why is he buying more? I mean, some people might say, well, he's so convinced he's right, he wants to buy as much as possible. To me, that's not what it looks like. It looks like this is desperation and market manipulation. He is trying to buy more Bitcoin to stop the price from falling. He's hoping that his buying alone will put a floor beneath the market. And by telling the market that he's going to buy another billion dollars, dangling that big buy order out there, that that is also going to put a floor beneath the market. It's going to stop people from selling because they know he's going to be buying. And I think he's going to be doing this all the way down. He is already completely all in on this Bitcoin trade, and he will continuously throw good money after bad until his company is driven into bankruptcy. In fact, if I was actually interested in buying Bitcoin, which I'm not, when I would want to enter the market is when MicroStrategies is finally forced to liquidate 100% of its holdings. And once they're completely out and they've sold their last Bitcoin, that's when I might consider buying it if that was something which I wanted to do, which I don't. You know, a lot of people confuse life insurance with making an investment. Because, you know, when you buy life insurance, you hope the policy goes to zero. You don't want to collect because that means you're going to die. Now, of course, we're all going to die eventually. But when you're young and you have a family, the odds are you won't die. But the reason you're buying life insurance is for the unlikely event that you do. And if you do end up dying prematurely, you want to make sure that your surviving spouse and your children get as much of a death benefit as possible relative to the amount of money you pay for the policy. And that's why term life insurance is so much better than whole life. Because when you're buying insurance, you don't need whole life because the money that you waste overpaying for premiums is money that could have given you a much bigger death benefit. And then what you do is you take the money you save by buying term instead of whole life, and then you invest that for the more likely scenario where you survive. Now you really build up an investment portfolio. And the best time to buy term insurance is when you're young and healthy because that's when it's the cheapest and you get the most bang for your buck. And Ladder makes it quick and easy to get covered for life insurance. Just log on with your phone or your laptop and apply. With only a few minutes, you'll find out instantly if you're approved. And after that, you can decide whether to move forward. The plans are offered at a personalized rate that can flex as your needs change. The prices are affordable, there's no hidden fees, and you can cancel anytime. Since life insurance costs more as you age, now's the time to cross it off your list. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly approved. Go to ladderlife.com slash gold. That's ladderlife, L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash gold. And finally, I want to explore this new tax that the Democrats are considering. Representative Thomas Swozy of New York, he is a member of the House Ways and Means Committee. And apparently he and his buddies on the committee are considering a one-time wealth tax 
that they're calling, get this, a Patriot tax. Remember, the last bill that had the Patriot in it was the Patriot Act, which was probably one of the most unpatriotic and clearly unconstitutional pieces of legislation ever passed. There hasn't been a Supreme Court to rule on the constitutionality of the Patriot Act. I don't know that it's ever been challenged. I don't think it passes constitutional muster, but this Patriot tax on wealth would be just as unconstitutional, if not more so, because it's so clearly in violation of the Constitution because a tax on wealth would be a new direct tax and there is no constitutional authority to have a direct tax on wealth. Now, they do have, in theory, although my father would argue, and in fact, he presented a very strong case as to why the 16th Amendment did not even change the Constitution. He presents that case in his book, The Great Income Tax Hoax, which, as I mentioned on this program, was one of two books that the U.S. government has banned. One of them was Fanny Hill, which was banned for pornography. And then there's my father's book, The Federal Mafia. Now, the government didn't make it illegal for anybody to sell the federal mafia. They only made it illegal for my father to sell the federal mafia. So I still have some copies that are for sale at shiftbooks.com. In fact, I've been autographing those copies for people who have bought them. Eventually, we're going to run out. So if you want to get a piece of American history, one of only two books ever to be banned, get yourself a copy of the Federal Mafia, not because I'm advocating that anybody take my father's advice and not pay income taxes. No, I'm not advocating that at all. But my father does present some very compelling legal arguments in that book, and I think it makes for very enjoyable and educational reading. So I would suggest people get a copy. But one of the points that my father's made in that book and also in his book, The Great Income Tax Hoax, was that the 16th Amendment didn't actually change the Constitution. And my father came to that conclusion from reading the Bershaber decision, which specifically said that they did not think that the 16th Amendment changed the Constitution. What it did was change the nature of the income tax from a direct tax to an excise tax. But forget about that for the purpose of this podcast. Let's just assume that what the 16th Amendment does is authorize a direct tax on income. Because if you read the 16th Amendment, it says the Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. Now, the reason they had to say that was because the Constitution clearly states that all direct taxes need to be apportioned. In fact, it's the only thing that the Constitution says twice. That's how important it is. If you look at Article 1, Section 2, it reads, representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned. But then if you go to Article 1, Section 9, it repeats that. And it says, no capitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. So clearly, this was so important that the founders 
wrote it into the Constitution twice. Nothing else is mentioned twice other than the requirement that direct taxes be apportioned. So then the question is, well, what's a direct tax? Because the Constitution writes about two types of taxes, indirect taxes and direct taxes. The rule for indirect taxes is that they have to be uniform throughout the United States. The rule for direct taxes is that they have to be apportioned. Indirect taxes are taxes that are paid indirectly to the government. They're excise taxes, duties, imports. They're taxes on articles of consumption. So when you pay a sales tax, for example, you don't send any money directly to the government. The business collects the sales tax from you, and then the business sends it to the government. So it's an indirect tax. And one of the things that the founders liked about indirect taxes is that they were self-correcting as to abuse, meaning if the tax was too high, people would simply not buy the article of consumption that was subject to the tax, and so the government wouldn't collect a lot of revenue. So the framers were not too concerned about abusive excise taxes because they knew there was some limit to how high they could be because it would be easy for people to avoid the tax if it was too high. And in fact, the government or the founding fathers assumed that the federal government was going to operate on excise taxes, on indirect taxes. The only time they thought the government would resort to a direct tax, given how difficult it would be with the apportionment requirement, would be during times of war, where the government needed a lot of money. Uh, Maybe they have to come up with it quickly, and so they would enact a direct tax. But since direct taxes did not have the self-correcting mechanism that excise taxes had because you couldn't avoid a direct tax. If the government put a direct tax on you, you had no choice but to pay it. The founding fathers wanted to make it very difficult for the government to enact direct taxes. And in fact, if it wasn't for the threat of potential war, I don't even think the authorization would be there. But they wanted to make sure that during times of war, There was an ability to raise revenue, and so they put that direct tax authorization in there, but they did make it subject to the apportionment clause. Now, what happened was that the original income tax was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in Pollock because it was considered a direct tax. Taxes on income were direct. Now, there was some talk that income taxes were not a direct tax or that even property taxes were not a direct tax. There were some people that thought the only direct tax was a capitation, which is just a head tax. But that's clearly not the case as the Supreme Court uh, ruled in Pollock. But even if you just look at Article 1, Section 9, it says that no capitation or other direct tax shall be laid. So clearly, capitations are not the only form of direct tax Otherwise, the Constitution wouldn't say or other direct tax. If capitation was the only form of direct tax, the Constitution would say no capitation shall be laid unless in proportion to a census. Or they might just say no direct tax, but they say no capitation or other direct tax, meaning there are other direct taxes in addition to capitations. And those direct taxes, according to the Supreme Court in the Pollock decision, are income taxes or property taxes. Now, the government, right, overruled that because they amended the Constitution. And they amended the Constitution so that the government could lay and collect taxes on incomes, 
without having to apportion it. But there are no constitutional amendments that give the U.S. government the authority to tax anything else directly without having to be subject to the rule of apportionment. So there's no constitutional amendment that says Congress can tax wealth. There's no amendment that says that they can tax property. There's no amendment that says that they can tax unrealized capital gains, which are effectively a tax on property. Now, if the state governments want to do this, well, they're free to do it. The apportionment clause of direct taxes, that doesn't apply to the states. So any of the states out there, if you feel your millionaires and billionaires are avoiding taxes and you want to soak them with a wealth tax or a property tax, you can do it. The problem is if states try to do this, people will just move to the states that don't, which is why a lot of the states want the federal government to oppose the wealth tax because they know if they do it themselves, the people they're trying to tax will will leave and then they won't be there anymore. But the problem is the Constitution simply does not authorize this type of tax. And for good reason. The main reason, other than the fact that these taxes potentially are very oppressive because they're not easily avoided like an indirect tax, is the framers did not want the poorer states to be able to impose taxes on the wealthier states that they themselves did not have to pay. And a wealth tax is a perfect example of exactly why the Constitution was written the way it was to make sure that direct taxes had to be apportioned. Because if you look at the tax, this is what they're proposing, a one-time tax of 2.5% on wealth between $50 million and $100 million, and then they want to have a 5% tax on wealth above $100 million. Now, clearly, the average American isn't going to be paying this tax themselves because most Americans don't even have near a $50 million net worth. So you're talking about a tax that is going to affect a very, very small percentage of the population, which is why it's popular uh, with the vast majority of voters who think they're getting something for nothing. In fact, the supposed purpose of the tax and the reason they're calling it you know, the Patriot Tax is because it's going to help build back better. It's going to help provide all of this laundry list of new programs and infrastructure and whatever it is that the Biden administration is promising. It's going to pay for a lot of that stuff. So again, it is something for nothing. The 99% get all this great stuff from government and the 1% or the one-tenth of 1% out of some patriotic duty are going to pay for it. Look, there's nothing patriotic about paying an unconstitutional tax. There's nothing patriotic about imposing an unpatriotic tax. Patriotism is supporting the Constitution. So this potential tax is very unpatriotic. And of course, in my opinion, the less money the government gets, the better off the economy. And so if you're a true patriot, you want to minimize the amount of money that you send to government. That's why Americans have a patriotic duty to pay the lowest amount of tax that the law imposes because the more money that's kept in the private sector, the stronger the economy is. The more money that is drained out of the private sector by the government, the weaker the economy is. So if you're a patriot, your duty is clear. Keep as much money as you can in the private sector and send as little as possible to the U.S. government. But getting back to the dynamics of this wealth tax, the way a constitutional wealth tax would be imposed 
is before the government could enact the tax, the government would have to first decide how much money it wants to collect. And according to the article I read, they're estimating that this wealth tax will bring in about $450 billion. And apparently, too, they're going to give the wealthy people who would be subject to this tax five years to pay it. So, for example, if you have a billion dollars in net worth and your tax liability is $50 million, right? 5% of a billion is $50 million. You would have five years in which to pay the liability. So you would write five checks for $10 million, right? So you'd write a check for $10 million for five different years, and now you would pay your, your wealth tax. But the reason that this type of tax may be very popular in some of the poorer states is there are a lot of states that don't have any billionaires. There's a lot of states that hardly have any people with net worths above 50 or 100 million. I mean, the people who have these really, really high net worths in general are concentrated in a handful of states. And the idea behind the apportionment clause is the founders did not want poor states to be in favor of a wealth tax that would kick in at such a high level that very few, if anybody, in their state would actually have to pay. So if the U.S. government were to constitutionally impose a wealth tax, what they would do is start out by saying, we want to raise $450 billion in a wealth tax. They can't set the rate. The federal government can't decide that the tax is 2.5% or 5%. They can decide the level at which it kicks in. So if the federal government says, we want to have a wealth tax that starts at $50 million, for example, they can do that, but they can't impose the rate. It's up to the state to do that because here's what they'd have to do. They want to get $450 billion. They have the most recent census. Well, let's say, and I'm just going to pull numbers out. You know, they're not exactly accurate, but they're close, right? Just to make it simple for the math. So let's say California is 10% of the population. Well, that means California is responsible to pay 10% of the wealth tax. So if Congress wants to raise $450 billion in a wealth tax, $45 billion has to come from California. Now, since California knows it's on the hook for $45 billion, it has to figure out what the percentage tax rate would have to be to collect that $45 billion from the state's millionaires and billionaires. On the other hand, take a very poor state like Mississippi. I mean, that, that might be the poorest state. Mississippi is maybe about 1% of the population, but it would be on the hook for 1% of that $450 billion, which would be $4.5 billion. But since there's not that much wealth in Mississippi and there's not a lot of people who have more than $50 million or $100 million net worths, the actual rate of taxation in Mississippi would have to be much, much higher than the rate in California. So let's say California could raise its share, right? It's $45 billion with a 3% tax because there's so many millionaires and billionaires, they can have a lower tax. But Mississippi, there may be such a small number of really rich people, maybe the tax rates have to be 50% in Mississippi for them to come up with their share of the tax. I mean, that's a huge rate. You know, you'd basically bankrupt a lot of your 
entrepreneurs because they'd have to liquidate their entire business uh, in order to come up with the cash. And so in other words, the direct taxes on something like property or wealth would so heavily burden these smaller, poorer states that there's no way that they would ever vote to enact them unless it was a real emergency, you know, like a war, and they really needed the money. But even then, they would not want the criteria for the tax to be on something like, you know, $50 million, $100 million fortunes when they know they have very few people within their state that actually fall into that category. So this is exactly what the framers wanted to make sure did not happen was that you had poorer states voting to tax wealthy states where the wealthy states would bear a disproportionate share of the burden and they would basically get something for nothing. So the apportionment provision makes that impossible. So there's no way legally for Congress to do this. Now, does that mean that they won't pass it? Well, a lot of stuff gets passed that is unconstitutional, but I don't believe it will hold up. I think as bad as some of the decisions have been in the Supreme Court, based on the current makeup of the court, and this is probably one of the best things that Donald Trump did, is we put some justices up there that are not likely to ignore the Constitution and not likely to overturn the Pollock decision because the Pollock decision is still standing as a Supreme Court decision. There have been no Supreme Court decisions since Pollock that repudiated or refuted anything that was in Pollock. The only thing the Bershaber decision did, which is the decision that upheld the constitutionality of the income tax, and this Bershaber decision was rendered subsequent to the 16th Amendment, the only thing that it ruled on was an income tax. And in fact, the majority in that opinion stated that there was nothing in the Bershaber decision that contradicted or changed anything from the Pollock decision. So the Pollock decision is still the law of the land. There have been no Supreme Court cases subsequent to Pollock that have changed the definition of a direct tax. And of course, direct tax, you can't just change the definition of it because it's in the Constitution. The only way to change the Constitution is to amend it. So I do not think the Supreme Court, as it's currently configured, is going to try to change the Constitution to accommodate an unconstitutional tax and allow the government to collect a tax on property or wealth, unrealized capital gains, without first having to subject it to the rule of apportionment. They would require the government to do exactly what they did when they wanted to tax income without regard to apportionment, and that is amend the Constitution in order to do it. And there is no chance that they're going to be able to enact a constitutional amendment. So what would happen if this thing passed, which I think is extremely unlikely that it will pass, somebody would be able to challenge the constitutionality. Somebody that was required to pay the tax would have standing to sue to get it back. And I do believe that they would prevail. But what I really think is going on here is that they want to dangle this threat, right? The Democrats want to have this as, oh my God, you know, 
we could do this, we could enact this, but instead we're just going to do this other tax on income or something so that the tax that they do end up imposing doesn't look as bad because the wealthy will think, well, at least we dodged that bullet. Like we're not going to get hit with this wealth tax. And so we're going to have to pay this higher income tax. But the higher income taxes are still not going to allow the government to collect anywhere near the money that it wants. In fact, the income tax in and of itself, being a direct tax that is unapportioned, has already allowed the U.S. government to collect way more money than they would have been able to collect had they been surviving on excise taxes, indirect taxes, which was the goal of the framers of the Constitution and why they imposed that criteria. But once they were able to get away with an unapportioned direct tax on income, even if they want to pretend it's an indirect tax when it's not, that enabled the government to collect a tremendous amount of money if they were able to now get the ability to have unapportioned property taxes, well, that would open up an even bigger door to far more abuse and allow the government to collect even more money. But our salvation is we've got the Constitution to stop that. So there really is a limit now. The government really can't collect that much more. You know, you get to the back end of that Laffer curve where you start raising income tax rates and you get lower income tax collection, you get less income, you get more tax avoidance. They've already hit that barrier. And so now they're grasping for other forms of taxes, but there really is nothing to grab a hold of. What they're really relying on and what they're falling back on is the inflation tax. Because see, that tax they can get away with right now. We've already ignored the constitutional protections regarding legal tender and forcing the government to be on a a gold standard, right? The Constitution says that only gold and silver coin shall be legal tender. We've already gone way beyond that, and we've got the Federal Reserve and paper money, and the courts are not going to stop the government from running deficits, nor are they going to stop the Federal Reserve from financing those deficits by creating inflation. So at the end of the day, that is the only tax that the U.S. government is going to be fallen back on That is the inflation tax. They're not going to be able to pay for this build back better nonsense by soaking the rich with a one-time wealth tax. They're going to do it with an inflation tax. And it's not one time, it's permanent. It's every year and it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And of course, another piece of nonsense with this whole thing, apart from naming it the Patriot Act, is the idea that it'd be a one-time tax. I mean, if they actually got away with this tax, if they actually were able to impose it and it wasn't struck down, do you think it would happen once? Of course not. It would be a whole new slush fund for the government to tap into. You know, one of the most famous quotes of Milton Friedman was this, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program. Well, the same thing is true with taxes. They don't have one-time taxes. You know, the withholding tax, I've talked about that on this podcast, but the income tax being withheld from your pay, that is the withholding tax. And that was imposed as a temporary victory tax. It was part of the Victory Tax Act, 1942. It was to help pay for World War II. It was a down payment on winning World War II. So the tax was supposed to be repealed once the war ended. Well, the war ended, but the tax is still here. So we're still paying to fight World War II 
decades after we won the war, which is why I said in one of my earlier podcasts, we lost every war because every war gave us less freedom and more taxes, and we continue to pay those taxes today, and we suffer the loss of freedom. 